For anyone that hasn't been here or wants to get brought up to speed with what we've been doing, uh, we've been going through like the, each book of the Bible, one, one week at a time, giving the overview of a book, as far as looking at it from the, the cultural background, um, who the author was writing to, who wrote the book, um, what the premise of the book is about, as well as what is the take-home message uh, for us today. And so two weeks ago, we looked at Matthew, and then last week was Mark, and then so obviously we've only just started, and this week is, is Luke. And so with Matthew, we had, had a, um, a gospel releasing or revealing Jesus as the Messiah. And then in Luke, we had a gospel that was revealing Jesus as a servant. And then this week, we're up to Luke, who's going to be revealing Jesus as someone as well. So who's, who's excited? Who's looking forward to it? Yes, fantastic. Does everyone want to quickly stand up and I'll just pray? I haven't done this for a long time. Don't awe at me. All right, God, I thank you that, that you're good father. And I I thank you that the whole Bible, Father, is written about you, Jesus, and the whole Bible, it reveals you, Father. It reveals your personality. It reveals who you are, Jesus. And and it was written to specific people, a specific audience, God, that each book, Father, is revealing and conveying a a specific message that you, you want us to receive, Father, and you want to speak into our hearts, Father. So as we go through this, Jesus, I pray that, um, it opens up a new way of how we relate to your word, Father, and how we, how we read your word, Father. But I, spoke, I pray that it also opens up fresh revelation of who you are, in Jesus' name. And everybody said? Amen. So, Damo, or whoever's on the computer, if you want to open up the first slide. So, like I said before, Matthew was uh, Jesus the Messiah, Mark, Jesus the servant, and then Luke is um, Jesus as the Son of Man. And so just, some, just a really quick overview of like Luke, and I think Nath termed it Fast Facts last week. I'm like, that was a really good name. And so these are Robert's Fast Facts of Luke. And so Luke was a Gentile writing for a man named Theopolis um, to give him a certain account of all that he had been taught. And the book of Luke was written somewhere between 59 and 61 AD. Um, some interesting facts. These are the Fast Facts. Um, Luke is the most complete gospel. It has over 20 miracles, six being unique to the book of Luke itself, 23 parables, 18 being unique to the book of Luke. Um, Luke is a doctor. Um, in Luke, there is more mention of healing than there is in, in Matthew and Mark put together. There are more medical terms used in the book of Luke than um, is used in Hippocrates, or whoever he's called, the, who was a Greek father of medicine. What was his name? That one, I'm not trying it again. Luke is the only Gentile writer in the Bible. It is the only gospel that reveals Jesus' childhood. Luke talks about angels more than any other book. He talks more about the Holy Spirit and prayer than in any other book. And from the opening account, you've got Luke revealing why he's writing the book. And he's writing this book, like we just said before, to state, to um, give Theopolis an accurate account, chronological understanding of Jesus' life, ministry, death, and resurrection. Um, did I say something funny again, Fonzie? No. <laughs> Luke investigated the events of Jesus by speaking with eyewitnesses, which he outlines in Luke 1, 2, giving Theopolis and us a record of the things Jesus did and said. Um, little is known, like realistically, about who Theopolis is, but there's a, there's a few common beliefs or theories. One is that he was a Roman official. The second, that he was a Jewish high priest. Third, he was not a person but a group of people, as Theopolis means a lover of God. Another idea was that he is Paul's lawyer in prison, giving um, Theopolis, which the theory here was a magistrate that was in charge of um, Paul's sentencing. And the other last one is that he was a Gentile believer. In the end, um, 90% of theologians, or 95% of them, all agree that he was a Roman official. It's the most widely held um, belief. And then there's a couple in there that I've thrown in there that like only one or two people in the history of the world have ever believed it. But nonetheless, that's in there as well. And so in the end, what we can work out about him, he was most likely written to a Roman official, if not a Roman, a Roman official, someone living in Rome that was under a Roman Greek uh, culture. And the, so this was the most widely held belief. And Luke's presenting, he goes through this gospel, presenting Jesus as the son of man, highlighting Jesus as the perfect man or the ideal man for a specific reason, because in a Roman Greek culture, 
that they were looking for an ideal person. They were looking for the ideal man, the man that was perfect. And you see this um, revealed through their gods, their Olympic Games, their focus and elevation of the rational mind. This other Greek philosopher and scientist, which I'm not going to try and pronounce, Paul, after that, he quotes and says this. He says, in order for a man to, be, to perfect his humanity, he must be the best man that he can be. And so the reason behind this Jesus being revealed as the Son of Man is really important when we understand how the Greeks and the Romans viewed humanity and how they viewed the gods as well. And this is what was written about Augustus, who was uh, the Caesar through, through the time of, of, of Jesus' birth. Um, it says, the most divine Caesar we should consider equal to the beginning of all things for when everything was falling into disorder and tending towards disillusion, he restored it once more and gave the whole world a new aura. Caesar, the common good, fortune of all, the beginning of life and vitality. Augustus, filled with strength for the welfare of men and who being sent to us and our descendants as saviour, put an end to war and has set all things in order. And whereas having become God manifest, Caesar has fulfilled all hopes of earlier times in suppressing all the benefactors who preceded him. And whereas finally the birthday of the God, Augustus, has been for the whole world the beginning of good news um, concerning him. So you've got Luke writing to an audience of people that this is their perspective. That their idea of gods comes through man. Oh, their, their, their Caesar is a god incarnate. And I'm going to go through it and have a look at some of the different mindsets of, of um, Greek and, and Roman philosophy and understanding of, of, of gods and, and all the, all the, everything that comes with that. But the reason he's highlighting this god coming as a man is because that's what the Greeks were looking for. That's what the Greeks and the Romans, they were used to. And so um, Luke opens his book with um, Jesus becoming a man in um, Luke 1.35. You've got the angel coming and saying, The Holy Spirit, this is to Mary, will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One born to you will become Son of God. And this is important because for a Greek mind um, or for a Roman mind, this was something that they were looking for. God always came in the flesh, and God was always in the flesh of man. And that's why the Caesars claim to be God. And, um, and, you've, and if we can go to the next slide, please, Damon. You've got this, you've got Caesar who comes and he proclaims, each Caesar proclaimed to be the good news. His birth was the good news. He proclaimed to be the saviour. He proclaimed to be God incarnate. He proclaimed to be the fulfillment of hope and he proclaimed, obviously, like I said, God incarnate, which you've got Jesus was. Like Caesar claimed to be whereas Jesus was. And so Luke's gospel reveals a perfect man being Jesus who was. Good news. Who was the saviour and is the saviour. He is God and he is fulfillment of hope and he is God incarnate. Um, so Augustus Caesar was emperor when Jesus was born. And Augustus claimed to be God and he claimed to be that he was Zeus incarnate. And if, when, then if we fast forward it, 50 to about 50 or 60 years, we have another emperor of Rome. And this time, um, the guy's name is Nero. And Nero gets really interesting because he now claims that he is Apollo incarnate. And it's, which Apollo is fascinating when we understand um, Greek mythology because with the understanding of the Greeks and Romans, they're on this pursuit of the ideal man and Apollo is the person that they personify as the ideal person. Apollo is the ideal God as far as they're concerned and he comes incarnate in the form of Nero. And Apollo, this is what he was to them. He would entertain other gods by playing the, the harp. He was also a brilliant archer and runner, considered to be the first winner of the Olympic Games. He protected young men. He was a god of agriculture. He was a healer and he taught people the importance of cleanliness. He was a father or the god of medicine. And Apollo is also the god of light and the god of truth. I find this fascinating. Matthew's gospel, we, we read through that and we read through God as the Messiah. Um, Jesus being revealed to them as the Messiah. And what we looked at in that is that how easy it is for, for us, for, for mankind to create a God in our own image, a God that we're looking for. And then we fast forward to, to Luke's gospel and we've got Luke writing to, to a Roman Greek culture that they've literally done that. They've created God that looks like them. Their gods all took upon a human form. All Roman Greek gods married, had children and often had illicit affairs and fought one another. Their gods look just like them. There was nothing in their gods that called them into anything different other than what they were already doing. In fact, their gods always came down and acted the exact same as what they would. 
And so you've got Jesus coming in, in, as the perfect man, what they're looking for and showing what the perfect man looks like, what um, son of man looks like or son of God looks like and revealing that to them. And in that culture, it meant a whole lot because their ideal was looking for the perfect man. And so when, Jesus, when, when Luke portrays this picture of Jesus as the son of man, well, they can grab hold of that because it's the language they understand. But then again, it flies in the face of everything that they know and understand because their gods to them do what they do. They don't call them or challenge them to become any different. So um, one of the differences or chief differences between Apollo and the emperors that are claiming to be God incarnate is that they reveal humanity. And if we go to the next slide, whereas Jesus reveals the Father. Um, Jesus reveals who the Father is. He reveals how the Trinity interact together. Jesus reveals how the Father wants us to act. Jesus reveals our righteousness. Jesus reveals truth. Jesus demonstrates um, perfect love. But when you look at their gods and their emperors, all you see is humanity being revealed. And it's never, it's never challenging them to rise above who they are. It's never challenging them to, to better themselves. And so this is what you've got Luke revealing as far as Luke is coming and bringing a point, account of God, the perfect man, to a Greek or a Roman Greek audience that is in a pursuit and looking for that perfect person. And so what I find fascinating about it is, and um, what I didn't realize when I, when I started this, is that this is actually the cornerstone of our theology. And Damo is going to go on, on next week and, and elaborate a whole lot more of this with the with when we get to the Gospel of John. But realistically, um, what Luke is highlighting is the incarnation of, of Jesus, and that is where God becomes man and, and, and dwells amongst us. But what I didn't realize is how important that was to us. Like all of our theology is intertwined and wrapped around that, and if that alone falls apart, then our entire theology falls apart. That's how we know who the Father is. And so I've got a couple of things that I just want to flick through. Um, really quickly, and Damo's going to, actually, no, before I get there, a couple of things as far as when we're looking at um, Jesus, the Son of Man. If we can go to the next slide, please, Damo. You've got this parallel through the Gospel of Luke, through the, throughout the Gospels the whole time, of where it's revealing God as a man, but it's also at the same time revealing God as God. And so that's what the incarnation is. It is God coming in the form of man, being clothed in flesh, like um, in, incarnation means being wrapped in flesh. It means God's come in flesh. And so this is what you've got. You've got that he, as God, he was or is worshipped. And he, and he also worshipped the Father. He was called God and he was also called man. He was called Son of God and he was also called Son of Man. He is sinless and he prayed to the Father. He knows all things, but he was still tempted. He gives eternal life, yet he still grew in wisdom. All the fullness of the deity dwells in him. He still died and was resurrected. He has a body of flesh and um, bones. So you've got this throughout Luke and throughout the Gospels, God being presented as God, but also God being presented as man, um, being the incarnation. And if we quickly, if we go to the next slide, I've got a few things that I'll, I'll just overview, but why the incarnation is important. He, the incarnation, it's through the incarnation that um, God is revealed to man. It's through the incarnation um, that God comes to unite himself to man. And it's through the incarnation that um, we see that Satan is restrained. If we go to the next slide, please. Um, The incarnation, how it reveals God to man, it unites heaven to earth. It shows us who the Father is. It gives us an outline and it reveals the character and nature of God. God became flesh that we might see and know God. The incarnation is a perfect representation of who the Father is and who he is as a person. Next slide, please. He came to unite man to himself. The incarnation unites man in that Jesus became like man that we might become like God. It shows us what we are and who we might become. It shows us what our identity is. Um, and all, all of this, Damo is going like, to go over in, in, in more detail next, next week with John. And so the next slide, please. He came to, to, restrain, to restrain Satan as well. And what I find fascinating about this, and I'll just touch on it really, really briefly, is that I've, I always had this understanding that Jesus completely wiped out his divinity and he was just as a man. And I completely missed the point that he still had a divine nature. Like God had, Jesus had two natures. He had a divine nature and he had a human nature. He was fully God and he was fully man. 
And so you got this story in Luke 4, um, 1 to 13, where Jesus turns up, um, he goes out into the wilderness and he's being tempted by Satan. And I think we all know the story. Um, Turn these stones into bread. Bow down and worship me, like all this stuff. Satan keeps coming back to him and tempting him. And I've always looked at that as, and put me in that category, in that place. I thought, I wonder how I'd do with it. And I've always looked at, at God's as, and Jesus' humanity with it and forgot to focus that, no, well, Jesus was divine still. And so when you, God, to backtrack for a second, God can't sin. And Jesus in his divinity can't sin either. And so Jesus incarnate still couldn't sin because he was still living out of divine nature. So that what you've got where Satan comes in and tempts Jesus, it wasn't even a battle. It wasn't, it wasn't even a, like Satan had nothing on him because it was impossible for him to fall. It was impossible for him to get it wrong. And so what I love about the, the, how the incarnation um, reveals to us our stand over evil, our stand over Satan, is, can that go back up, please, is what it does is it reveals that Jesus had a divine nature, has power over, and authority over sin, shame, guilt, condemnation, evil, temptation. Likewise for us when we become new creations. When we receive Jesus, we become a new creation and therefore we are given a new nature as well. We're given a nature of Christ's nature. We're given a nature of righteousness. And that means that Satan, sin, shame, guilt, condemnation have no power, have no authority over us because we've now got a new nature that we live out of. Are you with me? Yeah, fantastic. So, which is all like good and well, and obviously Damon's going to go into a whole lot more of that and unpack it. But um, what does it mean for us today? Because like we did with Matthew, we can run through all this history and, and, and context and Greek philosophy and everything. It's all fun and exciting if, if you're that way inclined. But it, it's no good if it doesn't mean much for us today. So can you go to that next slide, please, Damo? And there's two questions I suppose I want to pose to us. Is like, Are we content? And do we love those that we don't really want to love at all? And what I've noticed about when I, when I look at Jesus as a perfect man, when I, when I look at Jesus as, as come, becoming God incarnate and coming to us, is what he reveals to us is he reveals what contentment looks like. And he reveals that, um, that he loves all people. And it's perfectly illustrated throughout the Gospel of Luke. And so um, next slide, please. Are we content? Yeah, that is the next slide. Um, contentment propelled Jesus. And, and the thought when, in keeping with the incarnation is that Jesus had everything before his incarnation. He was in heaven with God. He was God. But yet he chose to give everything up to come and be with us, to come and serve us, to come and love us, to come and die for us, to come and, and make a way for us. And so you've got this contentment that Jesus um, demonstrates and reveals and, and shows how content he is. Well, he's content that he want, he's so, he's so content with the plan that the Father has for him that he wants to do something, and his contentment didn't come from his circumstances or location, but rather his contentment or ongoing relationship. His contentment came from an ongoing relationship with the Father, with wanting to outwork what the Father was doing, with wanting to see that impact and interact with us as humanity. There's a, a Holocaust survivor. Early Weisel, I'm not getting any of these names very good today, but um, wrote this, went on and said, the opposite of love is not hate, it's, it's indifference. The opposite of art is not ugliness, it's indifference. The opposite of not faith is not heresy, it's indifference. And the opposite of life is not death, it's indifference. And there's like a whole lot of different thoughts that that portrays, but Part of what I love that how it portrays is part of what indifference is, is contentment. I find myself content with where I am, so therefore I'll never step out. I find myself content with where I am, so I'll never action that. I find myself content with where I am or what I'm doing or with who I am, so I never actually challenge and stretch myself to move forward. And um, indifference is a lack of concern or refusal to act in the face of injustice. Indifference or contentment is the issue that is at the heart of all human suffering. We're too content to want to do anything about it. And realistically, that's the truth. Like um, Denise got up and she talked about the, the parable of, um, of Jesus talking about the Good Samaritan. And you've got the story of these people too content to do anything about it. 
This, this person, they're suffering, he's been beaten, but they're too content to do anything about it. They, so they just keep on working. Their contentment keeps them moving forward. But then one person comes along and he's got a different form of contention. He's got, his contentment is wanting to see the world changed. So therefore, he's never content with his circumstances, but rather he's content to want to reach out and touch someone and impact someone and love on someone. In most cases, our indifference is born out of comfort or complacency and a sense that I shouldn't get involved because it is not my business. I think as, um, as, as Christians, this is something that should strike at the heart of us. It is our business. Everything's like our business. I know we can really nut that down and say, no, certain things aren't our business. And you are. There is certain things that aren't our business. But, but at the end of the day, everything's like we, we've, got, we've got an opportunity to, be, to not be so content that we don't go out and share a good news, that we, that we, that, 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 that we don't sit here and just play church or, or, or act church or just act as Christians in our family homes, in our family environments, and negate wanting to go out there and doing something and, and impacting people's lives and sharing love and serving on people. We can become so content that we miss the whole premise of what the gospel is. Um, However tempting it might be to pretend otherwise, there are things in life that, that are worth suffering and even dying for. Damo's got this book up in his office, and I think it's called The Jesus Freaks. Is that correct? The one with all the martyrs and everything. And it's got really nice pages, and so I, as far as it's like, it looks like that recycled sort of paper as far as used for the pages. And I was always fascinated. Every time I was sitting in his office, I'd look at it, and the pages looked so nice. <laughs> And so I had to grab it and I had to start reading and then I just started flicking through it. And this was in a meeting with Damo who was talking to me. And, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> I know. And I couldn't put it down. Like the, everything was a little short story. And it, and it was a story of these people that had either sacrificed greatly or had literally sacrificed their life. They had sacrificed with, with physical suffering or, or torture or torment or had seen their family have to sacrifice their lives and they may be the, the lone survivor. Or it was a story of them themselves that sacrificed their lives. But what, what I found absolutely perplexing in every single story, there, there came a point in every single one of these stories where there was a way out, that they could have ran, that they could have exited the stage, so to speak, and ran for their lives, saved themselves, saved their lives, but every time they chose to, to do what they were called to do because they decided that this gospel, this good news is something worth suffering for and this is something worth dying for, so I will stay here and I will see it out to the end. Come what may, I will step into that and I'll see it out to the end. No matter what happens, I'll never be too content to share the gospel. I'll never be too content with the fact that maybe I'll suffer or maybe I'll die. I am going to share the gospel because it's what God's placed on my heart. It's so easy for us as Christians to do the opposite, to get so content with where we're sitting, with what we're doing, that we completely miss the premise of what we're supposed to do, which is to evangelize, to go and love on people, to go and serve people. Um, C.S. Lewis says this, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an arrogant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. I read that and every time I read it, it strikes my heart. And it keeps begging me the question, am I too content? Have I become content with where I am? Have I become content with my workplace? Have I become content with my ministry? Have I become content with the amount of impact that my life is having? Matthew 13, 44, it says this, that the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy goes and sells all that he has and he buys a field. And this is the question that, when, when I read something like that, I'm asking myself, like, have I found something that I want to go and get rid of everything for to go and buy it? Like, has my life become content? Is my job, is our goals, our bank account, our children, our, our friends, our ministry, have we become completely content that we've missed the example that Christ laid out as the perfect man? Have we completely missed it or are we striving for what God's laid out for us to do? Um, I know there's a few quotes that I'm throwing in here, but... Each of these quotes seems to be impacting me a bit. But Brant put this post up on Facebook um, a couple of weeks ago, which um, quite rolled me, and it's from Robert Kappen. 
And he goes, he says, the most critical issue facing Christians is not abortion, pornography, the disintegration of family, moral absolutes, MTV, drugs, racism, sexuality, or school prayer. The critical issue today is dullness. We have lost our astonishment. The good news is no longer good news. It is okay news. Christianity is no longer life-changing. It is life-enhancing. Jesus doesn't change people into wide-eyed radicals anymore. He changes them to just nice people. What happened to radical Christianity, the unnice brand of Christianity that turned the world upside down? What happened to the category-smashing, life-threatening, anti-institutional gospel that spread throughout the first century like wildfire and was considered by those in power dangerous? What happened to the kind of Christianity whose hearts were on fire, who had no, who had no fear, who spoke the truth, no matter what the consequences, who made the world uncomfortable, who were willing to follow Jesus wherever he went? What happened to that kind of Christianity? Again, like, every single one of these challenges me so much because I find myself so content. Uh, and that's just to be completely honest. It is so easy to be content. And even in our Western um, Christianity, sometimes... It, even when we're uncomfortable, it's contentment still. We find ourselves in contentment because there's a certain amount of uncomfort, but we don't want to step out any further because it's going to scare us because we're going to look like fools or buffoons. And I, I remember the time where, where Tyler and I decided we were going to go treasure hunting. And we marched down the street and looking for people to pray and, and he got laughed at and I got sweared at and it was the last time we did it for like months and months and years and years and, and all of the part because ultimately I was too content to want to step out any further and let God impact someone through me in that way because I was so content with my insecurity of not wanting to feel like an idiot. Next slide, please. Here's a question I've got for us with contentment. Have we, like, no, back one, please. Has our faith become content? Are we content with the difference the church is making in the lives of, of people around us? And you can put yourself in there. Are you content with the difference that you are making in the lives of people around us? Are we content with the number of people that we are seeing receive salvation? It's great to hear testimonies of, of what God's doing in, in other places in the world and throughout the country, but are we content with what God's doing here? And these are thought-provoking questions that we get to ask ourselves as epicenter as churches combined in Chuka, as, as people we getting to minister to our areas of, uh, of, of the culture that we're in, of the, of the individual areas of ministry and job places, these are questions for us. Are we content with the number of people that Jesus is healing through us? Are we content? Like, have we become content? And there's a list of questions you could go on and on and on and on and keep asking. And with the, the idea of what I'm not wanting to do is put us down and saying, you're too content, you're not doing anything, but rather challenge you as, as individuals, challenge us as a church, challenge myself. Have I become content? Jesus, the son of man, the perfect man, demonstrated how content he is by relinquishing everything for our sake so that we could be joined with him. And the question that he keeps asking me is that, will you follow my example? And I think the question that he's asking us is, will we follow his example or are we just going to be content? Uh, next slide, please. Do we love those who, um, who we don't want to love? Um, just keep it up there, please, Damo, for this one. John Piper says, many songs and sermons leave the impression that our greatest joy comes from feeling loved by God. But the goal of God's love is to make us forget ourselves as we look at him. And you've got this, the exact example throughout the Gospel of Luke of this man Jesus comes as the perfect man. And when he's baptized, God turns up and obviously he loves and, and lavishes his love upon him and says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. But what I love with that is that that wasn't, what gave Jesus fulfillment. That wasn't what made Jesus feel God's love, but rather it was God's love out of that moment that propelled his focus onto the Father and what the Father wanted to do. And I believe that it's that same projection on focusing on God rather than focus on him that helped him endure the cross because he could see what God was doing. See, if we were to put ourselves in, in the mix of that book that I was talking about from Damo's office, if our focus is on us, we'll always be content and run 
from trial. We'll always run from persecution. We'll always run from what hurts us emotionally or physically or spiritually. But rather, if our focus is completely embedded in Him, in who He is, in what He is doing through us and for us and to us, then we'll be able to stand. Then we'll be able to remain because our focus is on something that's not on ourselves, but it's rather it's on Him. Love does not discriminate nor require prerequisites. Jesus gravitated to the margins of society and spent a significant time with those who were considered on the fringes of culture. He did not centre his attention on the most powerful or popular. And this is a question that, again, with the contentment I roll into, am I doing this? Do I interact with people because they're cool? Do I interact with people because they're dressed right? Do I interact with people because... I think they've got something to give to me or do I interact with them because God has got something that he wants to impart to them to interact with them? Or do I, do I interact with them because I realise the gift that God's got on their life no matter how quirky they are and I want something of it and I want them to speak into my life? Like How often do we, do we push someone aside because they're quirky? They're a, bit, they're a bit out there. People could probably do that to me sometimes. <laughs> But it's so easy to discriminate. It's so easy to start requiring pre- prerequisites. And then this goes into law and grace and now prerequisites. So you've got to line up. You've got to meet all these standards. And I know we went through this with Matthew. But you've got to do this in order to line up before you can, we can actually come in and love you. But love doesn't discriminate at all. Do we want people to be sinless before they're a part of us? Um, do we want people to have the same theology as us before we consider them family? Or are we happy to live in the tension of they believe something different to me, but I'm still going to love them anyway, and I'm going to allow them to love me? The only prerequisite that we find throughout the Gospel of Luke or any other Gospel um, to the kingdom is built around building a relationship with Jesus. And when we partner with him, when... When we start building that relationship with him, well, then we, we get to walk, start walking in the family. And what, um, what prerequisites do is inhabit people from building a relationship with him because now it says this is what relation is and this is what you must do and so you can't have relationship with him until you tick a box. But rather, love takes people on the journey, understanding that this is where they're going to be. They may not be there now, but embraces them on the journey and loves them through the journey and never dis- discriminates and it never creates prerequisites but rather always looks at them through love and how biased or selective is is your love how biased or selective is my love care is not just talk it must be tangible it's not enough to simply talk about doing something we need to practically do something as well to be frank talk is cheap so often we find out who our friends are through the midst of grief through the midst of turmoil, and we're going through the most emotional roller coaster of our life, where it's the greatest darkness is normally when we find out who our friends are. And the unfortunate truth in that is, it's oftentimes it's not who we think it was. And it doesn't mean that in that those people don't love us. It's just all people love us on different levels. And but what we find as we're going through this is the people that we thought we're going to have as friends, they're actually they're their friends and they love us, but they're not going to embrace me through the time. And if I'm in the trenches, I want to know who's with me. It's a care. We can't just talk about being friends with people without backing it up tangibly. And so when we talk about caring for people, then we need to back it up with with, with actions. We need to physically do something. And I remember when we lost Bon um, last year. We, um, we gave the option for, for whoever they wanted to come to the funeral. And, and a whole heap of you guys came, and I was really, really appreciative of that. But what, what floored me the most was, everyone remember Davy? What was his last surname? Okanya. Davy Okanya. Uh, so Davy was, was, a, was African. He used to stand at the back, play guitar, strum away, very, very quiet, never say boo to anyone sort of thing. Unless he cornered him, then he might talk for a little bit. But he was a lovely guy. And I barely, like I'd talk to him at, when, when I turn up to play the guitar, plug in, hey, you going, Davey? Good, Rob. And then that was the last conversation we had, like for the day. And then it'd be like, it just is always like that. But then we, so it come, comes to the funeral, we put that thing out. And um, I've just, like the funeral was huge. It was like 1,300 people at this funeral. 
And I finished just, and so me and a handful of the other guys, we, we carried Bonnie's, um, Bonnie's coffin to the, to the car, to the, to, the, to the hearse. And I finished that and I was like, now all the, I've, I've held everything together so well the entire morning and day of the funeral. And I get to this part and I've just finished putting the, the coffin into the hearse and I'm starting to choke up and starting to struggle. And we're about to start the drive to the cemetery to actually bury her and, and all of the above. And I turn to look around to find a familiar face, but I can't find anyone. Every person is like my, my brother and Bonnie knew so many different people. It is ridiculous. And so there's no one there when I turned around that I knew, apart from my other brother who carried the coffin with me. And then out of nowhere, I don't know where he came, but this... This African just comes like he's fighting through the jungle. He's just ripping people apart. And he comes straight up to me and gives me a bear hug. He doesn't say a single thing. But at that moment, I broke down. And at that moment, I know he cares. And at that moment, I know that he loves me. And it was at that moment I knew that no matter what I'll ever go through, Davey will always be there for me. He didn't have to say a thing to me, but I know that he'll be there because his, his care wasn't just a matter of talk, but it was, a matter, it was tangible. He wanted to come and express his care for me and love on me in the time when I needed it. We make our talk cheap, though, when we refuse to take action or when we've got an ability to act, when we don't act. When action needs to take place and we don't do it, talk becomes cheap. We make, talk, we make talk cheap when someone is grieving the loss of a spouse, mother, father, sibling, grandparent, or whoever it is. And the moment we choose to say nothing because we don't know what to say, we make talk cheap. The moment we choose to say absolutely nothing, talk becomes cheap. And it means that our care actually in that moment is non-existent. We're not caring for that person. We're not loving that person. So there's got to be a tangible thing that comes with, with care. I, I love the... What Jesus does um, through John when he's, when he's on his way to Lazarus in, in John 11, 11, like Lazarus has died, the background to it, Lazarus has died and Jesus is on the way to Mary and Martha to, uh, and he's got, like the end of the story is that he raises her, him from the dead. And it goes on from John eleven eleven. he said to his disciples, explaining that the guy's dead, after he had said this, he went on to tell him, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. And then in verse 23 of John 11, he says to Martha as well, your brother will arise. But I love what Jesus does with compassion. I love what um, Jesus' talk was, that it was tangible in that when he gets there, in verses 32 to 36, it says he does this. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping, he was, moved, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. And then it goes on and said, Then the Jews said, See how he loved him. There was a tangible manifestation. He, he wept. He wept with the people that were weeping. We read through the, through the Bible, through the Gospels, to weep with those who weep. And, and I love the example that Jesus is putting out here. He knows he's going to raise him from the dead, but still he pauses and he weeps. He, he, he loves on them in the moment of grief on how they needed to be loved on at that time. And if he hadn't have done that, to be frank, the Jews would have never realized that Jesus loved this man if he had simply gone there and rose him, raised him from the dead. Jesus' love and heart and compassion for this man wouldn't have been made manifest to those people. People are going through grief. And to be honest, a lot of the time, people don't want help. They want someone to grieve with them. But what I've also realize is that when we're going through grief, we need to be proactive. When I'm going through grief, I need to be proactive to, to communicate with people so that I can allow people to, to love on me. And what I don't want to do is, is knock us all across the head and say, hey, we need to be, talk needs to be tangible with, with, with your care for people. But when we're going through stuff, our talk needs to be tangible as well so that we can allow and release people to actually care for us. Because if we don't tell people that we're going through something or if we create everything that we're going through, all about us and not allow anyone else in, then we don't even allow someone else to come in and love us. So there's two sides of it, that our care needs to not just be talk, but it needs to be tangible. That comes from both sides. I need to communicate to you when I need care and you need to communicate with me with actions when I need care. Um, compassion calls us to slow down, stop and make time for people. 
I love the Latin translation for compassion. It means simply this. It means to suffer with. Compassion isn't just an emotion. Compassion isn't just a feeling. But compassion is where we actually come around someone and we suffer with them. We grieve with them. We take on their emotions, so to speak, and, and walk through that part with them. It's not where we, we keep them at arm's distance, but rather we grab them and hold them close and walk with them through it. We suffer um, with them. And no matter how busy Jesus was in his life, he always took time, always took time to stop in order to care for people. And I just quickly flick through the Bible in different times where Jesus had compassion on people. Um, he had compassion on them, and so he healed them. In Matthew 14, 14, he had compassion on them, so he fed them. In uh, Mark 8, he had compassion, so he healed a man of leprosy, Mark 1. He had compassion on them, so he taught them, Mark 6. Um, compassion, so he sent them a shepherd. He had compassion, so he restored their sight. Compassion, so he raised the widow's son. In, in the story of the prodigal son, it was compassion of the father that caused the father to run to the prodigal son when he saw him returning. Compassion is actually meant to do something in us. It's not meant to be just an emotion. It's meant to thrust us in to what God's wanting to do in that moment. It's not meant to be just this feeling that conjures up in our heart and we look, oh, that feels, oh, I feel for that person, I feel for that person, oh, it's all gone now. Compassion is meant to thrust us in to do something. Jesus had compassion and he laid hands and healed them. He, he had compassion and he taught them. He had compassion and, 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 he, and he prayed for this person to, to be healed or to, to, to receive their sight. He had compassion. The father had compassion for the prodigal son, so he raced to him. Compassion is meant to thrust us into action. If our compassion causes us to be inactive, then we aren't operating out of any form of compassion. It's just an emotion. Compassion always has to outwork its, the end result with an action. Compassion was never supposed to be in a... All our emotions are given for a reason. We get angry for a reason and it's not bad. We get sad for a reason and it's not bad. It reveals something that's going on, but we're meant to do something with our emotions. That's why when we talk about anger, if people get angry, we say, well, it's what you do with your anger that matters. So at the end of the day, you're angry for a reason because it's something that's upsetting you. It's what you do with that that matters. It's a natural response of your emotions. And that's what compassion is. It's something that the Father's put in our heart, in our soul, in our emotions, so that when we feel that, it thrusts us into action for what he's called us to do, to what he's asking us to do. And the question here is, will you stop for someone today? Will you stop and allow that compassion, that, that what's churning in your heart to outwork and love on them and how they need to be loved? Love by nature is sacrificial and co-suffering. Jesus gave his life so that many others could find hope in life. Jesus said that, True love and friendship is embodied in laying down one's life for another. In addition, he described compassion as an act of suffering with others like we just talked about. In other words, caring for people, caring for others deeply requires us to live alongside them by bearing some of their pain and agony. Tanya shared communion, and I repeated it a couple of weeks ago in, in church info, that love is inconvenient. The moment that... We've got that opportunity or compassion has just risen up in our spirit. I can promise you this. It'll be the most inconvenient moment you can find because it's always inconvenient. It's never going to be at the time. It's like, just waiting for someone to come along so I can be compassionate with. It never works like that. Ever. Ever. It's always at the moment of it's like you are the most busyness. Like you're the busiest in your life. You're stuck doing something. You're a thousand kilometers away or whatever, but it always erupts at a moment where you actually, it's the most inappropriate time. Like God could have worked something better out here. This is not cool, but it's always inconvenient. And love is always going to be inconvenient. But until we step out in that inconvenience, until we take that compassion, until we take that sacrificial love and that, that co-suffering um, love and actually step out into it, then we're actually never going to impact a single person around us because we're going to be so self-focused. We're going to be focusing on ourselves. And I love that quote of John Piper's, God's love is never meant to be His love that we, we focus on it. We're meant to focus on Him. The feeling of His love is not meant to be the central theme of our focus, but rather our central focus should be focusing on Him. And so we focus on Him when we step out in compassion. Care must be transparent and honest. Jesus was transparent and honest in a way that he dealt with people. He was straightforward, but he was not rooted with an argumentative spirit. 
And there's a quote that like, gets used a hundred times, and I've heard it a hundred million times, I think, here. And sometimes it's way overused, but it's really true as well. Jesus loves you too much to leave you the way that you are. Like We hear it a hundred times, but we, you never heard it before? I'll say it a few times. Jesus loves you too much to leave you the way that you are. Jesus loves you too much to leave you the way that you are. You got it? Yeah, fantastic. And so, it, some, like, well, maybe for me, just for me, I've heard it 100,000 times and maybe it's lost a little bit of its grunt and all of that. But the reality is that it's true. Jesus came to mankind because he loved us too much to leave us at the way that we were because he wanted to impact us. He, when he speaks to us, he speaks us to a way that he wants to challenge us to change. He wants to inspire us to change. He wants to bring out what he's placed in us. And how many of you know that when God brings out the gifts and talents that are buried in you, there's normally a sense of pain that you have to go through to step into that person. He'll always interact with you with who you are, but we've got a choice to step into it. We've got an action that we need to take to step into it. And so Jesus interacts with us this way for the simple reason is that he loves us way too much to leave us the same. He always wants to, to, to see us change. He wants us to, he wants to see us daily be conformed into his image, into his likeness. He daily, he wants to see us operating out of his mindset. And the reality is the quote is so true. The care must be transparent and honest. Our conversations must be transparent and honest. Honest. So often when we find ourselves in conversations, we, we, an argumentative spirit comes up and we decide that we must be right because I am right. But we decide that we must be right and then care is no longer honest, nor is it transparent because now it's argumentative. And it's never the, never the form of how we see Jesus. Jesus comes and loves on people and interacts with people in a way that makes them feel loved, makes them feel accepted, but at the same time challenges them, stretches them to change. The moment someone says something that we disagree with, we feel the need to tell them that they're wrong. Again, our care isn't transparent and honest. It's all about our self-focus. And so here's some questions regarding that. Does what you have to say or what you're about to say, is it going to have any eternal significance? How many of us, like, focus on so much theological stuff when we're having, and we get into theological debates, this is just an example, there's a hundred other debates you could get into, they actually have no eternal significance. They're just a theological debate that, debate that is an opinion on this person versus that per- person. And it, it doesn't change where, where eternity is, or we even get bogged down in political debates, which there's still nothing wrong with again. But if that debate is leading to the point of now I'm angry and etc. and I'm wanting to force my opinion down that person's throat because they just need to get it right, because politics brings out the, the loveliest of all people, um, the moment that we, we, we engage in that out of that heart of I have to be right, the moment we completely missed it. It's got no eternal significance. Are we engaging in dialogue that has eternal significance? Are we challenging people with what has eternal significance? Are we allowing people to challenge us with eternal significance? Or are we so focused about what's right, what's wrong, what's menial, what's political, what's the- theological, and forget the point of what the point is, and that's to spread the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Some people are going to have a different doctrine, just to let you know. They're going to have a different political opinion. It doesn't have an effect on their eternal significance. Another couple of questions just quickly and then I'll finish up. Is what they are saying or doing hurting you personally? Most of the time, not. Most of the time, it's just frustrating. People say silly things, but that's okay. Is what they're saying or doing hurting you personally? If it's not, potentially we don't even need to engage in that or allow it to affect us. And when we do that, then when we allow it to not affect us, And care is now being transparent and honest. And the last one is, is what they are saying or doing hurting anyone? If they're saying or doing something that's hurting other people, maybe we step in. But otherwise, does it have eternal significance? Is it hurting someone else? Or are we just wanting to get involved and now become a gossip sort of session and wanting to pull people up on this got nothing to do with us? I love the Gospel of Luke comes and reveals all these attributes of God who comes as the perfect man, Jesus. And his care is transparent and honest. His love is sacrificial and co-suffering. And his compassion calls us to slow down, stop and make time for people. 
And his care is not just talk, but rather is tangible. And his, his love does not discriminate or require prerequisites. And his contentment is only wanting to see the Father do what the Father's wanting to do through mankind. He will, he's never content with where the world's at. He's always wanting to see his vision, his goal for humanity to released, for this community released. Um, so can you stand with me, please? Um, how about you just put your hands on your heart, please? God, I thank you for I thank you for the for the for the message that's revealed to us, Father, through through this book of of Luke, Father, of you, the perfect man, Jesus, that comes to reveal to us. Um, how we get to live in relationship with you and what that relationship looks like, Father. And I pray, God, that as we, we even go home and read through the book of Luke ourselves, Father, we, we see it in this light, Father, of this light of you being the perfect man coming to reveal that to humanity, Jesus, coming to love on humanity in that contents, Father. But I pray that what it does, Jesus, is that we as individuals, we don't ever become content with where we're at, Father. We don't ever become content with our faith, with our journey, with, with the impact that you're having on the, on the community around us, Father. But it always thrusts us into wanting to see change and wanting to see people's lives change, Father. And I pray that we never come to the place where, Love discriminates, Jesus, or where we're, we're not wanting to love on people because we find it a bit hard or inconvenient, Father. But I pray, Jesus, that you, the perfect man, thrust us into that place where our contentment is found in what you're wanting to do and our love is found embedded in your love for people. In Jesus' name, amen. So I don't know where everyone's at tonight, um, but... I know with like a message like that, it can be challenging. And I know for me, like this has challenged every part of me of where I'm at and what does my contentment look like and, and what does my love look like. So if you found yourself in that place where you're just content, you're content with where life's at, you're content with, with what God's doing in you and you're content with what God's doing through you, but you know that God's thrusting you into change. I'd love to have, have the chance for you to come up the front and I'd love to pray for you. I'd love to prophesy over you, to speak God's word into you and just to see you thrust into that new contentment of what God's got for you. If you found yourself in the place, the same thing with, with love, where you're struggling to love people and you're putting prerequisites on everything and you're, you're loving only a certain amount of people, I'd love to pray for you and I'd love to see those chains broke off and to, to relinquish that love of God through you afresh. Uh, love you, church. Hope you're enjoying it. Who's enjoying it? Yeah. So we'll be back next week. Damo is going to be bringing us the book of John next week. So look forward to it. If you miss it, we've always got podcasts. If you missed the last couple, jump on Epicenter Podcast and listen to, to Matthew and, and Mark as well. As If you want to listen to that again, please jump on and listen to Luke. Otherwise, if you want prayer, I'd love to lay hands on and pray for you. If not, love you, church. See you next week.